Father, we lament. We lament our cold, lifeless, dead prayers. Their utter feebleness adds sin to sin. If our hope were in them, we would be undone. But the work of Jesus perfumes our frail breathings. Jesus, perfecter of our prayers, sanctifier of our souls, would you please deepen our repentance of sin? Holy Spirit, revealer of all truth, make the book live. Make the truth dance. Feed our anemic souls. Our triune God, three in one and one in three. As we anticipate what is before us in this text, our minds stumble at the great things you have planned for us in Christ. May the grace we are about to receive in this text knock our socks off, make our jaws drop, cause our eyes to bug out. Give us a fresh glimpse of grace this day. A fresh glimpse of Calvary this moment. And a fresh glimpse of undeserved favor. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We've been studying the life of David. Actually, we've been studying First and Second Samuel, which covers the life of David. There are more mentions of David in the Bible than any other person. More texts devoted to this man than many of the other Old Testament figures combined. It's interesting that in all that material, there's no birth narrative for David. He doesn't come on the scene until he's anointed king. The scripture only seems to be concerned with his kingship. In today's text, we find David's court narrative. How things were run in the mansion. Not on the battlefield but inside David's White House. David's court narrative has been called the most brilliant historical narrative in antiquity. It's the court narrative, it's in the court narrative that we find David at his best. And when King David is at his best, we get a glimpse of our true king, the heart of the ultimate king. I do not want to overcomplicate our work in this text, so let's keep it simple with two movements, a heart-tugging story, heart-altering applications. A heart-tugging story, heart-altering applications. We will walk through the heart-tugging story and then walk away with heart-altering applications. We enter the story in mid-conversation. David is in his court having a dialogue with a group of men. We don't know who they are. The text simply identifies them as they in verse 2. I'm speculating that the they are his court officials, his cabinet. The previous chapter ended by listing them. You, you may remember there were two military officers, two civil officers, two ecclesiastical officers, and David's two sons. I think David is carrying on a conversation with all of them. His cabinet, his trusted men, his court David poses a question to these men, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Stop there. This is not an uncommon question for a king to ask. Are there any sons from the previous king still alive? 
Are there any remaining members of Saul's family still walking around? This is a normal question you would hear in a normal court. The new king needed to solidify his position and he would do that by putting to death any potential rivals. David must be hoping to eliminate any future challengers to the throne. That's the name of the game when a new regime takes over. Purge the old one. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We did interrupt David's question. Let the man finish his question. Verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Stop here. As it turns out, it's not. Is there anyone left living in Saul's family so I can kill him? But is there anyone left living in Saul's family so I can show kindness to him? Now, you need to understand how this is landing on these men. These two military officers, the two civil officers, the two ecclesiastical officers, and David's two sons. King, you, you want to show kindness to the house of Saul? He made you a fugitive on the run for 10 years. You were an enemy of the state. He hated you. He had the bloodhounds chasing you. He tried to kill you on multiple occasions. <laughs> the house of Saul stood for everything in opposition to David's kingdom. Showing kindness to his house didn't make sense. Why, David? What, what would possess you to act in a way that is completely opposite of all the other Middle Eastern kings? Why are you desiring to show kindness? Well, church, let the man finish his sentence. And maybe you will find out. Verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was the son of Saul and best friend of David. Jonathan was at least 20 years older than David. But age did not hinder their true friendship. You may recall... 30 years ago in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when Jonathan told David, I know you're going to be king one day. You will sit on my father's throne. When that day comes, will you take care of my family? Right then and there, David made a covenant with Jonathan that he would. David is a promise keeper. He wants to fulfill his pledge. The time foreseen by Jonathan has come. David is ruling and reigning and he wants to do this kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, Jonathan died on the battlefield with his father 15 years ago. David knows the Sauline dynasty is defunct. Circumstances beyond David's control had decimated Saul's offspring and, and he's curious to know if, if anyone is left. And I think one of the cabinet men... Jehoshaphat, who, who oversaw the royal archives, speaks up in verse 2. He's the, he's the record, record keeper. He's the historian. He has detailed files on Saul's family. He, he opens the file folder and does a little reading. Then he says, Hi, right here, I, I found a connection. The best way to find an answer to this question is to find Ziba. Ziba was a man who used to work for Saul. He, he managed the estate. 
He was a senior figure in Saul's cabinet. He played a big part in Saul's court narrative. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. Ziba stood before King Saul many times. But this is the first time he stood before King David. They apparently did not know each other. David asks, are you Ziba? Yes, I'm Ziba. Well, I, I have a question for you. Is there anyone living among the house of Saul? Anyone walking around from that family? Well, well, yes, king. There's only one left. He's actually a son of Jonathan, but he's not exactly walking around. He's crippled. Now, now notice that David doesn't receive this man's name first. He receives his disability first. This man is defined by his brokenness. No name, just the broken legs. He's not a threat to you, though, king. He's nothing but a cripple. Well, I'm not planning to kill him, Ziba. I'm planning to give him loving kindness. Ziba thinks to himself, this certainly isn't a normal reaction for a king of a new regime, or a normal court for that matter. There's something very different about this court in comparison to Saul's court. David listens attentively as Ziba unfolds the history of this cripple. He says, King, I know you're not aware of this, but Jonathan had a son. During the 10-year time frame when you were running for your life in the wilderness, living in caves, about midway through, Jonathan's wife bore a son named Mephibosheth. David That little Mephibosheth was like the Energizer Bunny. He never stopped. He was a ball of energy. And fast, my, my, he was fast. The fastest boy among all the boys in Saul's court. But when Israel went to war with the Philistines, Saul and Jonathan went out to lead their men. Jonathan left Mephibosheth with his nurse. And everyone thought it was going to be another battle where Israel won and the Philistines ran away with their tails between their legs. I was there when the messenger boy came. Frantic, sweating, voice trembling, announcing to the entire court The king and his sons are dead. We lost. Run for your lives. We all ran. We all panicked. We all screamed. We all cried. Mephibosheth's nurse scooped him up and began running. The boy was five at the time. In her haste, she fell. The fall must have been hard because when the boy hit the ground, he immediately started screaming. I I remember the blood-curdling cry. Sends chills down my back to this day. Daddy! Daddy! I can't feel my legs! 
David, he didn't know Jonathan was already dead. At first, we thought it may have been a broken leg, but it was more. He broke both legs and injured his spinal cord. David, you know what happened next. His uncle Squishy Ishi took over the 12 tribes and then you took over the 12th tribe, Judah. For seven years, he was cared for by the slowly crumbling house of Saul. When you were finally appointed king over the 12 tribes, Mephibosheth was age 12, still crippled, but now no longer in the royal family. They took him and hit him. At this point, David interrupts. That's the man. Find him. Hire a private investigator. Begin a nationwide search. Put his picture on a milk carton. Put his name on flyers and staple them to poles. We need to find this Mephibosheth. Zebo responds. King? Actually, I know where he's located. Verse 4. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. King has been there for 10 years. He, he must be in his early 20s now. Why is Mephibosheth in Lodabar? Lodabar means no pasture, no thing, nowhere. Mephibosheth is, is living in no man's land. He's living in exile in a desert where there is no pasture, no farmland. It's a God-forsaken wasteland. It's barren. It's obscure. Mephibosheth would have never chosen to live there. So why is he there? Because no one else is there. He grew up in hiding. He's living in Nowheresville. Where no one visits and no one can find him. Who looks in nothing town? Who will ever search Nowheresburg? Welcome to Lodabar. Population. Who cares? King David responds to this new information with the command to his two military officers in the room, Joab and Benaiah. He says, Joab and Benaiah, I, I want you to go to Lodabar and bring me back Mephibosheth. These two military officers, along with a group of soldiers, embark on the long journey north. They travel for miles and miles, and once they see the tumbleweeds blowing, they realize they're getting close. They are hot and annoyed by this lowly assignment. They have angry looks on their faces. They find a little shepherd boy and ask him, where's the house of make here? A little boy points them in the right direction. They arrive at the house and Knock on the door. Some lady answers. And the strong and gruff warriors say, We are here by the command of King David. He's received word that Saul's grandson, 
Jonathan's son lives here. Go fetch him. He's coming with us. The little maid, filled with terror, agrees and says she will close the door and bring him out. Mephibosheth, David's men are at the door. They're coming to take you away. He flops off the bed with a massive thump and looks out the window. He sees warrior men with spears and shields. He breaks down. They're going to kill me. How in the world did they find me way out here in Nowheresville? I don't remember much about my life before my accident, but, but I do remember my grandfather always talking about how horrible a person David was. He's coming to exact revenge, to mow down everyone from the house of Saul. This is what new kings do. I have Saul's blood in my veins, and they're coming to drain it. The little maid says, maybe, maybe they want you for something else. Please. I'm the grandson of a deposed king. They are coming to purge. They will either sever my head from my body here or wait to do it in the presence of the king. He looks up at the woman Possibly the nurse from his youth. Terror has filled his heart. And tears have filled his eyes. You can't let them take me. Get, get me out of here. I, I hate these legs. I used to could run. I was fast. I could outrun these men. Go. Tell them I'm not here. She responds. They're going to come looking for you. I will hide. Can you see me? I don't know how it went down, but I know they got him. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought Mephibosheth from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Machir, son of Amiel, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Mephibosheth has feared this moment for years. He knew he wouldn't be able to hide forever. He knew David would scour the landscape and eventually find him. He really believes he's being ushered to his death. Mephibosheth awkwardly throws himself down. This is more than honoring David. This is not standard etiquette. Mephibosheth is clearly terrified. Verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. 
David's response to Mephibosheth is threefold. First, don't be afraid. David knew Mephibosheth thought he was going to kill him, and he wanted to relieve that tension right away. Don't fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. I'm not a normal king, and this is not a normal court. I didn't bring you here to hurt you. I brought you here to bless you, to show kindness to you. Mephibosheth, there is no reason to live any longer in fear of the king's judgment. I'm not here to give you judgment. I'm here to give you grace. I'm going to give you grace for Jonathan's sake. 30 years ago, I made a promise to your father that when the time came for me to rule, I would act kindly to his descendants. Mephibosheth, I am a man of my word. I plan to keep that promise. <laughs> I can only imagine Mephibosheth's response. King David, I had no idea you were such good friends with my father. I had no idea about this covenant. I've been living in fear of you my whole life. I've only heard bad things about you from my grandfather. Come to think of it, dad would always shake his head when grandpa Saul said those things, but I had no idea you two were that close. I only knew you as a traitor to my grandfather. For Jonathan's sake is repeated over and over in this chapter like a, a faint echo that never stops. David's response was threefold. First, don't be afraid. Second, I'm giving you an inheritance. Mephibosheth, your grandfather's place is going to be yours. That's like saying you just inherited Texas. That's a big deal. In an agrarian society, this changed his fortunes forever. In a culture where land is power, land is wealth, Mephibosheth just became Warren Buffett. In a split second, he went from dirt poor to filthy rich. He went from no pasture land, Lodabar, to a land full of fruit and harvest. This cripple had lost his inheritance. It went down the drain with Saul's dynasty. But David restores to him the estate of Saul. The farmlands, the cattle, the orchards, the buildings. They are all yours, Mephibosheth. All the revenue that the estate produces is yours. First, don't be afraid. Second, I'm giving you an inheritance. Third, eat at my table. Now, this has roots all the way back in 1 Samuel 20. You may recall when David told Jonathan, I'm not going to show up to the king's table. And when I'm not there and there's an empty seat, I want you to see your father's reaction. Because he's going to be infuriated. He wants to kill me. So David, by this action in this text, is saying, I lost a seat at King Saul's table, but Saul's grandson has gained a seat at my table. The text does not use the word adoption, but that's what's happening here. I will adopt you into my family. I will look at you like a child. You will eat at the family meal. You will be my son. Now remember, David's two sons are there in the room. They're hearing all of this. I'm not sure if they're happy about it or angry about it. 
knowing these two boys from later passages, I'd say angry about it. Dad, he going to get my room? What was the reaction of the cabinet? David's cabinet? King! The palace isn't in compliance with the Disability Act. We're going to have to build ramps and move rugs out and change the bathtub around and lower the windows and pay for physical therapy. There is a lot of work in bringing him in as a son. It's going to cost, King. Do it. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, he's coming to my table. He's entering my family. David had promised Jonathan that, that he would not put his descendants to death when he ascended to the throne. That David would let them live. But David is doing much more than allowing Mephibosheth to live. He's doing more than his covenant promise required. I'll adopt you personally and empower you economically. Verse 8. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I want you to see Mephibosheth's self-evaluation. He calls himself a dead dog. He views himself as less than human. This disability has dehumanized him. He has disparaging comments about himself. He has a morbid self-image. There's nothing more worthless than a dead dog. Especially in a culture where dogs were street rats. Not furry little animals you put in your purse. And this day, no one, no one was going around saying, I'm a dog dad. I'm, I'm a, we are dog parents. I just absolutely despise people talking about their pets like their children. That's a departure from the text, but it's free for you. <laughs> a dead dog can't fetch. A dead dog can't protect. A dead dog can't hunt. A dead dog can't kill a cat. A dead dog can't perform anything. That's the point. It's a useless carcass. And that's how Mephibosheth viewed himself. I'm nothing but a useless carcass. David can identify with Mephibosheth here. David has had some really low moments in his life. And in fact, David, while on the run from Saul, asked Saul, Why are you hunting me? I'm nothing but a dead dog. David said that 25 years earlier. You want to know where David said that? <laughs> While on the run in a desert area somewhere very close to Lodabar. Must be something about living in Nowheresville that makes people think they are useless. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, grandson shall always eat at my table. <laughs> now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He believed in the command to be fruitful and multiply. 
verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Ziba would become chief of staff for Mephibosheth. This is a, a Downton Abbey situation. He's the steward of the estate. <laughs> this is a good day for Mephibosheth. Moving day. He goes to the post office and submits his change of address. I need all my mail forwarded to the king's house. This is my last day in Lodabar. I'm moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment in the sky. It's in the Hebrew. You can't see it here in the English. Mephibosheth's deformity will not rob him of privileges. Lameness is no bar to sonship. The, the crippled is as much an heir as the one who can run like a gazelle. Charles Spurgeon said of Mephibosheth's ability, he, he said this, Mephibosheth's ability to enter may be impaired, but not his right to entry. Verse 12, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. This is a bit surprising. Mephibosheth having a son, his legs didn't work properly, but he could still produce children. Maybe he married Makir's daughter. That would explain why he lived with Makir. There are holes in the narrative, and we don't need to fill them. Verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived, verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, for he was lame in both his feet. Every night around David's table, around the king's table, the family sat down to eat. It's an elegant affair. The finest silverware in China, the best meats, the finest wines. All David's sons and daughters are present. There's Tamar, David's daughter. She's beautiful inside and out. If there ever was a king's daughter that should be called princess, it was her. Absalom. Absalom is seated. David's handsome, ruggedly strong son. But there's a, there's a seat empty. The empty seat does not infuriate King David like it did King Saul. David waits patiently, as does the family, until everyone hears... Mephibosheth, dragging his legs across the floor. He climbs onto the chair and smiles and says, Sorry, I got here as fast as I could. These old legs aren't as fast as they used to be. The table smiles. And David says, Let's eat. And there at the meal, a tablecloth of grace covers Mephibosheth's legs. A heart-tugging story. Now, heart-altering applications. I have four. Heart-altering application number one. 
From a dead dog to the king's table, Mephibosheth foreshadows the gospel message. From a dead dog to the king's table, Mephibosheth foreshadows the gospel message. This little story is meant to help you understand the spirit of the bigger story. Mephibosheth said, I'm a dead dog. Now that's a wrong view for anyone to have of themselves physically. But it's a very appropriate view to have of yourself spiritually. It's a realistic assessment of your spiritual condition before God. We see in this story a picture of God's kindness to lost sinners. Mephibosheth was crippled, lame. Lame is one of the ways the Bible speaks about our spiritual condition. You can't walk to God. Your sin has crippled you. If that isn't a picture of the unredeemed, nothing is. You are dead in your sin, a dead dog, but Jesus brings you to the table. You went from unwanted to chosen, from worthless to priceless. You went from a dog pen to the king's table. God doesn't care how messed up you are, how broken you are, what sin you've been wallowing in. He has power to bring you out, to make you a new person and set you at his table. Mephibosheth bowed to David as king. What was David's response to Mephibosheth who bowed before him as king? The same response of Jesus to those who bow to him as king. It was threefold. Don't be afraid. Eat at my table. Be like a son. Non-Christians, salvation is adoption. It's bringing you into God's family. It's giving you a seat at the table. And when he's brought you in, there's no reason to, leave any, to live any longer in fear of the king's judgment. From a dead dog to the king's table, Mephibosheth foreshadows the gospel message. Heart-altering application number two. From Lodabar to Jerusalem, grace finds you when you aren't even looking for it. Grace finds you when you aren't even looking for it. Mephibosheth wasn't looking for grace, but grace was looking for him. We all belonged at one time to the previous regime, another king, the prince of this world. Then we heard Mephibosheth. In verse 6, when David called his name, it was significant because everyone else explained his condition before saying his name. But David, the king, called his name without mentioning his condition. And oh, what it must have been like for Mephibosheth to hear the king say his name. The king does not define Mephibosheth by what happened to him, but defines him by the grace bestowed on him. Church, think about this. Mephibosheth received grace. But who initiated it? The king. The king took the initiative. He initiates the giving of grace. Isaac Watts, who lived in the 1600s, penned this hymn, and I quote, "'Twas the same grace that spread the feast, 
that gently forced me in. Else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. If David had not gone after Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth would have never come on his own. Nobody comes to God unless God comes and gets them and drags them into his presence. Now let me speak to you older brother types. You know the parable of the prodigal son, older brother, younger brother. Let me speak to you older brother types. Those of you who have a bit of Pharisee in you. You think you've earned your way to the table. You think it's a table of effort, not a table of grace. Deep down you think, God brought me to the table, but I keep myself here. Friend, the grace that brought you to the table keeps you at the table. You, you would run back to nowheresville if not for God's persevering grace. You, you would go back to Lodabar right now if God didn't keep you at the table. Your spot at the table is not earned. And you can't pay it back? You didn't qualify for this? Grace is not something you qualify for. You don't have to achieve something to be at this table. You don't have to prove yourself. This is not a table of who's who. There's a... There's another hymn in the early 1800s that goes like this. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me. You didn't have anything to do with this, older brother. <laughs> it was all grace. Now, younger brother types. Those of you who have been out and you're coming back and you think you're too bad for grace. You're too far gone to be put at this table. See, this chapter hits both sides of grace. Those who think they can earn it and those who think they can't receive it. Both errors are addressed. You will never be worthy enough to receive this grace. You're not meant to deserve it. You're not meant to earn it. And you're not meant to repay it. You're simply meant to receive it. You come to King Jesus in your frailty and in your need. All you need is need. You come to him in your rebellion and in your sinfulness. Grace does the work, not you. Sola gratia, by grace alone. When we gather each Lord's Day and worship, I want you to remember we are all cripples sitting at the king's table. Some of you are beaten down. The world has not been kind to you. You are trying to persevere through the hurt. You feel ashamed. You feel unworthy. Something has happened to you like it did Mephibosheth and it's making you feel worthless. You've been dropped by somebody. Somebody that promised they would be everything to you. It doesn't matter who dropped you. God will pick you up. With the Lord, there are no damaged goods. His tablecloth of grace covers your broken legs. This is what we learn from Mephibosheth's marvelous, matchless, momentous 
magnificent, monumental grace. I was going to title the sermon that, and then I thought, I can only say that once. <laughs> Heart-altering application number three. From crippled to leaping, my last day in Lodabar, I'm moving to New Jerusalem. From crippled to leaping, my last day in Lodabar, I'm moving to New Jerusalem. When Mephibosheth went from Lodabar to Jerusalem, his legs were still crippled. But when Mephibosheth enters New Jerusalem, we just finished Revelation. When Mephibosheth enters New Jerusalem, he will leap. The lame will leap like a deer. We have mobility-impaired individuals in our church. Kids who will never know what it feels like to run. But one day will be their last day in Lodabar. And they will move to New Jerusalem. And they will run, they will jump, they will leap. Because hear me, when the Messiah comes, when the King of Kings steps on the scene, there will never again be lame at the king's table. From crippled to leaping, my last day in Lodabar, <laughs> moving to New Jerusalem. Finally, hard application number four. From receiving to giving, when you've received the kindness of God, you distribute the kindness of God. You live out the kindness that you've received. David said he wanted to show Mephibosheth God's kindness. That's the Hebrew word hesed. You find it all throughout the Old Testament, and it's three times in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 7. Each time translated kindness. Our English word kindness does not capture the depth and richness of this Hebrew word. It's a limp translation. Hesed could be an almost untranslatable word. It means steadfast love, covenant kindness, divine fidelity, covenant care. It's speaking of God's kindness, God's hesed. David has received God's kindness and now he wants to give God's kindness. And this kindness is not swayed by shifting emotions or hormones. It's rooted in God. We must live, church. We must live this glorious doctrine we believe. Be kind as your God is kind. God's kindness makes you, like David, reach out over barriers that normally keep people apart. David reached over tribal barriers. David was from Judah, and Mephibosheth was from Benjamin. David reached over tribal barriers. He reached over political barriers. House of Saul, house of David. David gave God's kindness to an enemy house, an enemy's house, Saul. So I just want to end by saying this. May the kindness that God has worked in you, may it work from you this week. Father, it doesn't matter where we are. 
Your grace can find us. We, we were way down, Lord, in Lodabar. But you reached way down and redeemed a sinful people for the praise of your glory. Hallelujah. What a Savior.